Well, I've counted myself as a positive or constructive postmodernism yeah. in the sense that we accept the relativity of a great deal of knowledge and the culturally bound or interpretive aspects of a great deal of knowledge, but not all of it, and not even that assertion itself. Right. <laughs> so what's your take on Postmodernism. There was a two-decade period in the humanities where it was rather the 800-pound gorilla, wasn't it? Well, yeah, but here again, this gets into the difference between the empiricist, pedestrian, social scientist mode, which I think of as in many ways more my own walk, you know, and the philosopher's more sublime mode here, which I think of as yours. You know, in other words, (laughs) it's true that at the level of the discourse of very complex thinkers and so on, there's been this robust postmodern imagination, and it's kind of analogous to Vaclav Havel saying, we've come to the end of nations, and then look what we've got when we break up these totalitarian states and look at the former Yugoslavia. I mean, we certainly haven't come to the end of nations. So you have almost this elite group, which is working somewhere beyond the fourth order, maybe even in the fifth order, and working through this transition that first has this strong pushing away negative cast to it and hopefully wins its way through to this more reconstructive postmodernism. Yeah, yeah. But in the <laughs> down from the mountaintops in the real world <laughs> of what is the consciousness center of gravity yeah. at an empirical level or when you're yeah. working with a group of even very privileged and very bright graduate students yeah. as I am, you know, at a Harvard University professional school, yeah. the center of gravity is much more working through the movement toward self-authoring, not the pushing away from it. Got it. There is a certain kind of embattlement, you might say, that's been a part of the world of postmodernism at the intellectual discourse level and, yeah. and critiques of theories and theorists battling away. But then there's another whole dimension that has to do with where people actually are more often developmentally. Yeah. Well, I do agree with that, but I bet you'll agree with this part as well, though that there is a parallel reflection that actually went on in a lot of people's ordinary lives, a very mundane level, that really did kind of reflect just some of the deep concerns that postmodernists were dealing with. And it's just what we started talking about. There was a whole change when postmodernism itself, I think reflective of this pluralistic level of development or the green meme or shifting between these two orders of consciousness that we were just discussing, I think it was a very real shift in awareness up from orange to green or up from what Claire Graves called multiplistic to relativistic, mm-hmm. and about 20% of the population seems to have moved into those stages. There were many positives about that, including a lot of the important things of the 60s and the 70s about feminism and equal pay for equal work and health care reform and environmental reform and civil yeah. rights movement, I think, yeah. are all part of that in a very healthy way. Yeah. The downside of all of that is just that, is that we can make no judgments at all. Judgments are bad. We can't have any hierarchies. We don't make any choices. When in fact, of course, you are valuing things. You've just gotten confused now about how to think about it because you don't have a compass because you're not supposed to make any judgments at all. And so we had a whole group of people get lost in terms of being able to make and feel that they can say, this is better than that. I feel good when I say this is better than that. And you have to sneak up on people, as you were saying. Show them this film of Carl Rogers and allow them to start talking normatively. And allow them to start making statements about this might be better than that. Wait a minute. World-centric is better than ethnocentric. I'm allowed to think that. That's a good value that I'm allowed to think. In thinking that, I don't have to give up any of my affections and my prizing for the particularities of one ethnicity or another. Right. 
Well, exactly. But world-centric is better than Nazis in that sense. And you can yeah. be ethnocentric, embracing your roots, but also not wanting to oppress any group because of its race or its color and so on. Yeah. And so I think we did get the downside of having a wonderful non-judgmentalist in the positive sense about everybody should be given equal opportunity and equal access and so on, to being confused about how to make judgments at all. We lost touch a little bit with how to do that. And I think that's what's so interesting about the downsides of postmodernism. 20% of the population has a hard time making conscious, explicit judgments because they are tiptoeing between some very difficult issues. I remember feeling this in an interview I read in Enlightenment magazine between you and Andrew Cohn. Yes, yes. Um, and, I, and I can feel this creeping into our own conversation, which is, there's a certain way that anyone listening in could be forgiven for concluding, well, aren't these two guys just incredibly comfortable with themselves? And <laughs> it must be so nice for them, basically, to be looking out onto this world of confused people who uh, <laughs> haven't somehow figured out what they've figured out. And I agree that there's some small percentage that may be very culturally influential whose forms of relativism or an are a working through of the limits of self-authorship and so on. But I'm still not completely convinced that a lot of the forms of upheaval and, in some cases, liberation and increased protections for mm -hmm. people that were excluded and many of the things that we would think were most positive about the, the 60s yeah. and 70s. I'm still not sure which relativism they were largely riding on. Yeah. For example, living in Boston, we had a whole period of forced busing to increase forms of integration for kids in schools, recognizing yeah. that a lot of kids were really getting the short end of a stick in terms of their own schooling. Leaving aside whether we think that was a good or a bad strategy to try to achieve greater degrees of equity, the basic aspiration to recognize that every kid deserved the best public education we could provide for them, irrespective of their race, is something I think we'd agree is positive. But if you looked at the faces and the discourse of the most passionate forms of objection and concern about what was happening to the integrity of these distinct neighborhoods, yeah. like these very yeah. white Irish neighborhoods, for example, yeah. South Boston, let's say, and the more black neighborhoods of Roxbury or whatever. For me, it all got personified in one brief exchange between a woman who became a political champion of the white Irish South Bostonians. Her name was Louise Day Hicks. Mm. And Arthur Garrity, he was a federal judge who took over the schools and basically enforced busing. Yep. And what Louise Dayhick said is, Arthur Garrity is an Irishman who doesn't want to be Irish. Yeah. And when you look at the battle joined that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? I do, you know, I it's, do. it's all about coming yeah. out of these sacred self-definitions of oneself and yeah. one's tribe. Yeah. And the basic messages that are getting interpreted as somebody who is somehow violating yeah, yeah, yeah. the oaths of their own tribe and so yeah, on, yeah. is about a different developmental passage. No, I agree entirely. No, I was trying to isolate one component of many that were involved. And let me just check and see what you think about it in terms of some numbers that some of the people had run. If you take Don Beck and Claire Graves' work, for example, yeah. their general claim is that the percentage of population at Green, or what Graves called relativistic or pluralistic, went from around 5% to around 15 to 20% within about one generation. It was a fairly large bump that they tended to see. And Paul Ray, the sociologist, tends to agree in very loose-ish terms. Now, don't you think that little bump could contribute to some of that? 
Because what you would get then is that people at a different stage, even though it's just a percentage of the population, would be contributing to some of this stuff. And if that stage happens to be rather defined by its sort of relativistic, pluralistic, like we were talking about, then that would be expected to enter the population in its own pedestrian way to some degree. Yeah, Is that yeah, one I component? Think I think that's possible. Lots of other factors involved. But I think you're right that there can be situations where certain kinds of cultural moves and changes take place that were initiated with a certain kind of mindset, and then they are seen and they're interpreted and they're right. experienced by lots of other people in a wide variety of ways. Right. My first experience of this is as an adolescent coming of age in the 60s and being part of the anti-war movement yep. was coming to recognize that often in these demonstrations and political actions with hundreds of people where at one sense I was feeling, isn't this wonderful that we have this common group of like-minded people who are taking a stand yeah. against ah. our country's moves okay. into killing people in the jungles of Southeast Asia because we were moving together and moving against a common foe. Uh, I think but, I know where this is going. Yeah. Was Once the, you yeah. really dug into what various people were actually uh, believing, oh, I know. you realize, oh, my God. Uh, I know. It reminds me of an interview I remember reading with Richard Pryor, you know, the black comedian. Yeah, yeah. And he did a movie with Gene Wilder, oh, yeah. a lot of which was based in a prison. Oh, an hysterical movie. I yeah, I've, and he said, we were in a real prison. He said, yeah. and, you know, for years I've been saying every black man is a political prisoner, you know, and it should be a prince living on a different continent, and this is the man keeping us down. He yeah, said, right. I spent two weeks actually with a lot of these folks and talking with them, and he said, thank God for penitentiary. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I remember that dialogue. Oh, yes, he was hysterical on it. Uh, excuse my French, but he said, they'll fuck you in the ass just to see the look on your face. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's like the whole content structure thing, right? We can't take yeah. given behaviors as themselves being evident of a particular order of consciousness. You know, that very experience, that identical experience you're talking about, the war protest, because I was at some of those as well, and that was the budding experience of how non-unified that was, even though yeah. it was under unified language, that actually yeah. led to me eventually writing a thing called the pre trans fallacy, the pre-post fallacy, because right. there were many, many studies on this done, and I know you're aware of, but one of them in particular went into the Berkeley protests, yeah. and Kohlberg and his people did. Actually, yeah. again, there are dozens of these done, but a typical yeah. one showed yeah. that of everybody seen this saying, we protest the war, we're doing it for universal moral reasons and so on. Right. About 20% of the people there were post-conventional, right. and about 80% were pre-conventional. Exactly. exactly. And it's like, whoa, because pre and posts are both non-conventional and they're own kooky ways, right. they sounded similar. And why should we have expected that community of people to be any less diverse oh, yeah. in their mental sets than yeah. any other community? Yeah. This is what's so interesting. I want to talk to you about adult development as well. On the long haul, and I almost hate to use the analogy of the stock market, but you never know, and some people are just anti-capitalist in general, but there's an old saying, the stock market has its ups and downs, but on the whole, it just kind of keeps going up slowly. And right. if you look at human history on the long haul, it does seem to be a little bit like the stock market. And yes. the center of gravity of consciousness, it just keeps trudging on upward, doesn't it? Yeah. Actually, that was one of the things that Kohlberg was quite interested in before his death was thinking about this on a much grander scale. And he resurrected some social scientists from the 30s. I think his name was Hobhouse, who was basically trying to marshal evidence for right. exactly that thesis. Right. Well, Plato called it Eros. There does seem to be an Eros running through the cosmos. That, to me, is just fascinating. Yeah, this would quickly get us into a more spiritual realm. 
why are we growing and developing individually? What problem are we at a species level yeah. gradually and transgenerationally and evolutionarily being called to resolve? We're living in a race against our own destruction or our continued survival. Well, it's a little like the whole issue of the fact that every individual, at least in first world cultures, is living longer, just a longer number of years. A hundred years ago, people died at a point that we today call midlife. Yep. And when you ask, so why are we living longer? The glib answer is medical science. (laughs) The deeper question is, why are we developing? As a people, if you just step back from this, why are we developing the knowledge in order to live longer? What is the purpose of this? Well, and that, again, opens up a whole can of things. That'd be another hour. Well, it is, and I want to do it. Let's talk about a little bit of it right now, though, and then let's sort of come back and do this, because you and I should be checking in more often. I agree. I completely agree. (laughs) Um, Absolutely fascinating. And one of the things, too, as you know, I did, it's actually a brief book in terms of content, but it's called Integral Psychology. And the reason I did it is I put 100 charts in the back of that book. And these were developmental charts taken from all over the world. Of course, you're in it, and Claire Graves, and Maslow, and Piaget, etc. And all the way back to Plotinus and Aurobindo. And the striking thing when you look at these developmental charts, maps, that different pioneers have come up with, is certainly there's a lot of differences. But on balance, it's the striking general similarity yep. to these things. It really yep. is just breathtaking. And it is an increase in perspective egocentric to ethnocentric to world-centric. Yeah, I think that's absolutely so, and it even links back to this notion of hierarchy. The hierarchy objection is often very linked to or closely followed by the cultural forms of relativity, that this must surely be a Western theory, and why should we give it any credence? And look how clearly Western this is, this whole notion of onward and upward, and, and then... I can't tell you, especially over the nearly 30 years I've been at Harvard, one of the interesting things is just how much more internationalized our student body is and just how wonderful it is to be sitting in one place and have opportunities through the people who come to us to connect with cultures all over the world. We have many, many more students who come not from the West at all. And to have them come up and say, It's very interesting to us, Professor Keegan, how you have this theory and this idea, because you're clearly such an American, and you're so Western, and yet the theory itself is just so fundamentally Eastern. I don't know how to tell you this. You're a Neo-Confucian, sir. I don't know why you're (laughs) ripping us off, you white imperialists, but it's a Vedanta notion and a Confucian notion and a Taoist notion, and it is. You find them over there. These spheres of increasing care and consciousness really are universal in the best sense. One of the things that I wanted to definitely least work in is adult development and how hard is it i was a little bit misquoted in what is enlightenment because i had made a point in several books as have you that although transformation defined as a vertical change in levels or stages or orders of consciousness and complexity happens fairly quickly in infancy and young childhood it's like we're really going through a lot of ground very quickly and you can see three four or five major transformations by the time you're an adolescent and then sometime in around the 20s it doesn't stop it just gets harder people seem to kind of plateau out and kind of get rutted a little bit and there have been several empirical studies trying to take adults and say okay let's take somebody who's 30 years old what can we do using any scale of development, Jane Lovinger's, Bob Keegan's, Claire Gray's, doesn't matter, using that scale of development, can we get people to move up a stage or two? And the answer is it's damn hard. 
And so I was quoted as saying it's impossible, and of course it's not impossible. And I thought one of the wonderful things you had done in how the way we talk can change the way we work. Right. I thought the great thing about that book was the simplicity and the sneakiness, in the right. best sense, yep. of helping people transform by objectifying yep, what they're at. Yep. But it is hard, isn't it? It's harder, isn't it? I agree it's hard. And I remember in that interview, when that particular point was brought up, I remember thinking about the notion that there's almost a geometric thing going on, that we can see this transformation of a relatively simple human organism over the first nine months of life even, right. I mean, moving right. into any recognition of a subject-object distinction. And yeah. then it takes a little longer, but yeah, relatively speaking, might only be like a year and a half or whatever till the next one. And yep. then the next one might yep. take more like three years or something. But you start to get a picture that as the system that one is gradually outgrowing becomes more and more complex, yeah. we should expect an extremely nonlinear curve here that it's going to take longer and longer. And this goes back to the issue of what does it mean that people tend to live an additional generation? What does that give people time to generate, right. having an additional generation to live? So I think that it's a combined hopefulness and a recognition that, yes, these kinds of developments are quite gradual and slow. Yeah. Well, here's a counterbalance to that, because the other side of that, and let's just use for extreme emphasis, Jane Lovinger, eight levels, or Claire Graves, the spiral mm -hmm. dynamics, they're roughly yep. the same eight levels. 50,000 years ago, to be an adult, you had to go from stage one to stage two. That was it. If you got up to purple, that's 100,000, 200,000 years ago, that's it. That's about as far as humanity has gone. You're a fully adult, mature person. One major transformation way to go. Of course, you could screw it up. and <laughs> There would be pathology. Mm -hmm. Human beings are always good at that. Right. But all you had is one step. Then you come into the beginning of farming, maybe yeah. 15,000. Now you've got to get up to red. Yeah. Once you have some kind of a tribe, some kind of a group where you have to be in some way acculturated into it. Right. You've got to get to three. You've got to get to three. And Let's, that will be fine, right? That's and fine. that's fine. Then at some point you get to an agrarian structure. You've got to get up to four. And then you come into the Western Enlightenment with at least world-centric, post-conventional legal codes. That's good old level five, at least. You've got to educate at least through high school to have a liberal democracy. We have in the 60s, supposedly, according to Claire Graves and some others, a center of gravity that got all the way up to about level six. So to be an adult human being using this eight-level thing, people have to go through not just one, but four or five or six major transformations. And many of them do it by the time they're in their 20s or 30s. So in a certain sense, being an adult means that we have sometimes five or six major stages to go through, as opposed to a million years ago when we only had one or two, possibly. So not only are there more stages we have to grow through, it seems that there are more ways we can get sick, because every time there's a stage, there's something that can go wrong. We have six ways of getting sick, when the original tribes had one way of getting sick. And so, of course, we can be some pretty screwed up people. But there's also that compression in a certain sense that those have to get stacked up on top of each other. And then by the time we get into early adulthood, then there is that plateau we're talking about. And whether people come in at level four, level five, level six, by the time they're in their 20s, they tend to slow down a little bit. But I find that the whole notion, it's almost like a stack of orders of consciousness that we're required to go through as evolution itself keeps going on. Yep, I agree that as we evolve more and more complex environments in which we live, it sort of calls out for greater degrees of complexity. Right. And in a certain way, that whole dimension to our conversation is a bit of a cure to what might otherwise 
seem like a too decontextualized consideration of yeah. the solo human evolving on his or her own. In a sense, what you're naming is the way in which the evolution of culture creates a more and more adequate and stimulating holding environment that yeah. is actually to some degree to be credited for these extraordinary developments yeah. of, say, the last several hundred years in comparison to the prior yeah. hundred thousand years. Yeah. I mean, that's a magnificent picture of an unself-conscious school or yeah. educational process yeah. that culture is building there. Yeah. That's that image that we were talking about, four quadrants with the spheres going through Yeah, them. exactly, exactly. And culture acts as a kind of, we have a center of gravity somewhere on the spiral dynamics thing, orangish, most Western democracies, blue to orange to green. Mm-hmm. And so the center of gravity is like a magnet. It helps pull you up to that average. Yep. But if you try to go beyond it, it can pull you down. In other words, you're on your own a little bit the more you go in that direction. And usually that's why so many of the contemplative societies have emphasized the Sangha. In other words, get a group of like-minded people and practice if you're going to try to go any farther than culture is gone because you're not going to get any help from culture anymore. Yeah. Well, that was, as you know, the basic theme of the book In Over Our Heads, that in a way we had evolved a culture that really was making these continuous fourth-order, self-authoring kinds of demands. Exactly. And yet our center of gravity even as an adult population, was somewhat less complicated than that. Very much, yeah. And that can be both a picture of a good school. I mean, in and of itself, Uh there's no problem with having the culture be a little bit more complex if the kinds of supports that would be necessary to master that culture are provided. Well, starting with a adult learning and professional development chair, (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and ending there, too. And ending right there, too. <laughs> it is a delight, as always, to talk with you, my friend. I just really, really appreciate you so much. You know, I've told this many, many times to people, and it probably bears the daylight out of you, but there's original Integral Institute meetings that we had up at the Boulder House, yeah. some 400 people through there. Only one person that I ever see this happen to, and that's on occasion, you would make an impassioned point. At five or ten minutes, we were all taking turns talking, and people would applaud when you got done. <laughs> and twice, I saw them stand and applaud. And I, I just want you to know, of all the people well, that came through that house. This, this goes back to the context <laughs> issue. You know, I, I'm sure I couldn't have done that without feeling remarkably well-held and supported by what you were doing there. Well, I appreciate it. I do appreciate it. We are going to continue that journey, my friend. Okay, I look forward to it. (laughs) Wonderful talking with you, and I look forward to seeing you and talking with you again before too long. Me too. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye.